have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. We're in our second week looking at the life of Elijah in the context of the big story. And as you're turning there, just for a heads up, we're going to start doing something a little bit new over the next few weeks that you're going to see. Logan has come on staff, as many of you know, as our pastoral intern. And one of the ideas that he had was to be able to have a time during the week where we could ask people could ask questions about the sermons that we could discuss. So every Tuesday evening around 5.15, I'm going to go Facebook Live with Logan, and he's going to be asking questions following up from the sermon so that you can kind of tune in. You'll be able to see it afterward. If you're not able to tune in live, that's fine. But the reason that it's relevant is we want to hear your questions. Like if you have something, if, if the Lord triggers your thought, if there's something that's unclear or you're confused about, you can email Logan at ironcity.org that question, or you can write it on that connection card and just drop it in the box, and you can do that anonymously. And we'll get it this week, and we'll try to make sure that those are announced. So, 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 20, and we'll read through verse 40. It says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water around the altar... uh, The water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. 
And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things according to your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we believe that you are in fact alive. We believe that you are in fact the only God who is alive, the only God who is worthy of our lives, the only God who is worthy of our affection, the only God who is worthy of our passions. And yet, God, we are so tempted by so many of the offerings of other gods around us to give our hearts to so many different areas and pulled in so many different directions. I pray this Lord, morning, Lord, that wherever there is a heart bent toward other gods in this world, bent toward the prosperity that they promise, bent toward all of the offerings that they make, that today, as you did with your people Israel all those years ago, that you, you would turn their hearts back toward you. Lord, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive. We ask these things in Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There once was a woman who was jilted at the altar by a con man that she loved with all of her heart. This woman became incredibly bitter over her experiences and it became her mission to make sure that other men might feel some fraction of the pain and misery that she had felt herself. And so she decided that the best way for her to inflict this kind of pain at a safe distance for herself was to adopt into her family a beautiful little orphaned girl. And so from a very young age, she conditioned and raised this beautiful little orphaned girl so that she would know how to be alluring to men, but that instead of finding pleasure in their pleasure, she would find pleasure in their pain. She trained this girl how to lead a man along so that he would want to be with her and so that he would love her and desire to commit to her only to have that snatched away from her by her cold-heartedness. She would engineer situations so that this could happen. She would invite boys into 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 her home and to be around the little girl that she had adopted and she would engineer the situation to ensure that the boy would fall in love with the little girl because she took sadistic pleasure in watching his heart be broken. Now, some of you probably have already picked up. That's Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Or Mrs. Havisham is jilted at the altar and she adopts the little orphan girl Estella into her house who ends up torturing Pip, who loves her, a good and faithful man, all of his life. But you know that scenario, 
That scenario sounds a lot like our relationship with Jesus, doesn't it? If, if, if you were to hear me say that this woman was a devil of a woman, that she was crafty and cunning, it's because this is exactly what's happening behind the scenes of our lives, isn't it? Imagine, imagine what would happen if Satan could go and he could engineer life so that he could work in my heart and condition my heart to desire what it ought not desire, to condition it to love what it ought not love, condition it to want what it ought not want. So it con- he conditions me individually and then collectively he conditions society to make what is right whatever I desire. So he makes my desires corrupt, and then he conditions society. So the society says, whatever you desire is what is right. My goodness, that's what we see, isn't it? That's exactly what we see. And that's exactly what has actually taken place in the heart of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 18. This methodology of Satan's is not new to us. This is not a Johnny-come-lately strategy for him. That what he had done is over time, he had given them a desire for more. He had given them, he had drawn out this false love in their hearts that they would long for different and long for additional and long for what Bel could have. And he brings Jezebel then into the picture. And Jezebel not only uh, invites people to worship Bel, she normalizes the worship of Bel so that this corrupt desire becomes normalized in the kingdom of Israel. And that's what makes Ahab more evil than all of the other kings. All of the other kings, there had been tolerance of other gods, even acknowledgement of other gods, but it is Ahab that normalizes the worship of other gods in the life of Israel. And so God sends the drought. God sends a drought for more than three years, and the drought is an assault on the very character of Baal because Baal is the storm god, and Baal is supposed to be able to rain down and bring fertility upon the land. And so he brings the drought upon the land to show the very impotence of Baal, to show that Baal always overpromises and underdelivers, that Baal cannot give what he promises that he is able to give. And so there's been a showdown coming. There's been a showdown coming between Elijah who has pronounced that this famine is coming, that this drought is coming, and Ahab who has been bowing his knees to Baal, who's now responsible for a nation who is at its most, uh, its most desperate state, at its lowest point, hungry and longing to be re- returned to a place of prosperity. And it's this showdown that we see in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now what's interesting is that 1 Kings chapter 18 is a love story. It's a love story. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. It's a story in which we see at least three different shades of love, and it's meant to draw out these these understandings of love and these stories of love so that we can see what the big story actually is. The the first story that we see is that it's a story of half-hearted love, a story of half-hearted Hearted love. In Great Expectations, Estella, she's always leading Pip along. She's always leading Pip along and she's always giving him just a little bit of herself. Just He goes and he beats up this bully one day. She gives him a kiss on the cheek and, and she begins to radiate at seeing this. And so she gives him just enough so that she remains alluring. Just enough so that he thinks he has a chance. Just enough so that he stays interesting, interested. But she never gives him herself. She never actually loves him back. She never gives him enough so that he can think, I have her heart. I have Estella. 
in fact, that's what we see here with Israel. What we see with Israel is Israel is in a relationship with the covenant God of gods. And they want to give him part of who they are. They want to give and pay homage in some sense to part of who they are. But they only want to give him a little. They only want to give him a little. They don't want to give him the whole thing. They don't want to go all in with all of their lives and have him be the central reality. They want to give him just enough. Does that sound much like cultural Christianity to you? Does that sound much like cultural Christianity to you? We go and we say, Jesus, you can, have most of, you can have a part of my life, but you can't have all of my life. You can have my Sunday mornings twice a month, but you can't have everything. You, you can maybe even have a portion of my, you, you can't have the whole thing. I'm going to make the decisions that I'm going to make because they are best for me and for my family. This is why he says, it's, it's interesting the way that Elijah comes and he confronts. You can imagine there on the edge of Mount Carmel, all of Israel is, is gathered. And you have this prophet and he's confronting them. But listen to the confrontation that he, he presents them with. He says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? How long will you go limping between two opinions? This word limping, it, it, it paints a picture in Hebrew. It, it's... It could be construed as walking around on two crutches where your footing isn't really solid. You might tip over at any moment. You don't have a good firm foundation under you. Limping could also be pictured as hopping from one foot to the other foot, hopping back and forth. So here's, here's what he's saying to them. You've torn your heart in half and you've tried to give half of it to Yahweh and half of it to Baal. That you have tried to love God with part of who you are, while at the same time trying to love those very things that are in the opposite direction, those things that God hates, those things that God has, has called you away from with the other half of your heart. That very truly what's going on in Israel is that they have a half-hearted love. I wonder if that would be how you might describe your relationship with Christ. Is your relationship with Christ a wholehearted, whole person, whole life love? Or have you broken your heart into pieces so that he might have this piece but not this piece? You see, half-hearted love keeps its options open. Half-hearted love keeps its options open. That's why they're limping. That's why they're hopping back and forth. That's why you'll notice that it says that the people did not answer him a word. They did not answer him a word because they didn't want to say. They didn't want to choose. They didn't want to have to be nailed down. They wanted to be able to keep their options open so that if a more exciting opportunity came along, so that if a more fantastic God came along, so that if a, a better option presented itself, they would have the freedom to be able to choose that. Now, if that option didn't present itself, they wanted to be able to hang on to what they had with Yahweh. They wanted to be able to hang on to the covenant, the promises, and the history. So they wanted to have their ancestral God as a part of it, but they wanted to make sure that their options were open so that if better opportunities presented themselves that would increase their standing in the world and increase their levels of prosperity and increase the number of opportunities for their children, that then they would be able to, to sign off on that activity at the same time. Did you know that 30% of Tinder app users are married? Did you know that? 30%. 30% of people are on an app looking for somebody else while they're already in a committed relationship or an allegedly 
committed relationship. What does that say? That says, I'll be in this relationship, but if a better opportunity, if something more exciting for me comes up, if, if, if something that is more in alignment with the way I envision my life being, if, if something that I think may present me greater happiness or greater, greater joy or, or greater energy or greater excitement or greater fulfillment, if that comes along, that's an option that I want to be able to keep on the table. But I ask you, is that love? Is that love? And is it love when we take Christ and we push him to the margins of our lives so that he can have whatever we have when we're bored, so that he can have us when we have the energy for it, so that he can have us when all of our other schedule clears out, so that he can have us when every other decision-making mechanism in our life seems to fail, that then we'll use him as our decisive nature? Is, is, is it love to push God to push Christ to the margins of our lives so that he gets the leftovers of our lives, so that he gets pieces of our hearts when all the other things that interest us and all the other things excite us aren't available for us to give our hearts to. Well, I wouldn't say that's love at all, would you? I wouldn't say that's love at all. That's half-hearted love. Half-hearted love that keeps its options open. Half-hearted love that, that refuses to commit. Half-hearted love that refuses to to commit. I love the way that he comes and he's just direct. That, that's one thing that you can say about Elijah. Elijah doesn't beat around the bush, okay? Elijah's not a, a, a sugar-coated preacher the way that, you know, we kind of historically say it down here in the south. Elijah looks at them and he says, look, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Now, do you hear what he's saying? Elijah is saying that there must be a decision that is made. Elijah is presenting that there, there must be a decisive nature. Now, what's implied in here, <clears throat> forgive my voice there, what's implied here is monotheism. And that may blow right past of us because most of us have grown up in what is largely a monotheistic culture. And what I mean by monotheism is a commitment and the worship and the belief in only a solitary, singular God, Right? Of course, for Israel, that's not the case, right? Like, Israel is one monotheistic nation in the midst of a whole globe of polytheistic, many gods, nations, right? And so implicit in what Elijah is saying is that you must decide between the gods is you must decide who you are. You must decide if Yahweh, as he has presented himself to you, is just another god or if he is the god. You must decide if the way that he has presented himself to you is actually the truth. You must decide if it is actually right and good. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because that's what sets them apart. That's what makes them different than everybody else. And yet, here is Israel always saying, I don't want to be different. I just want to be normal. I, I don't want to be separate from everybody else. I don't want to be distinct from everybody else. I don't want to have to be committed to one God. I want to be like all the other nations that can have as many gods as they find and as many gods as they discover and as many gods that come onto their radar. I want to be like everybody else. I don't want to be distinct. But you see, it was always an offer of freedom for Israel, monotheism. 
They didn't have to worry about making this God happy or, and upsetting this God. They didn't have to worry about, like uh, Paul talks about in Acts chapter 17, the unknown God and try to make offerings to some God that they've never even heard of just in case they've ticked him off or forgotten about him or he goes home like a petulant child afraid that he's not been invited to the birthday party. They only had to concern themselves with one God. One God who was not the figment of imagination. One God who was not the result of human ingenuity. One God who had made himself present in the midst of his people and provided for them and delivered them and proven to him that he was alive and true. But this God, the true God, he is so great that he requires decisive faith from his people. He requires that they decide in their hearts and resolve in their hearts that he is true and all the others are false. That they might be fully, totally, and utterly devoted to him as the center, as the cornerstone, as the foundation of their lives. That he is unwilling as the God of gods, as the supreme being in all the universe, as one who is transcendent in goodness and holiness and might and sovereignty to be shared with some half-hearted floozy. No. He requires decisive faith. In fact, Jesus says the same is true of his disciples. Jesus says if anyone would come after him, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. That, that if, if a man wants to live, he must first lay down his life to die. That, that, there is no other, that, that there is no other one who is worthy of the commitment of your life than Christ himself. That if you want the salvation of Christ, if you want the abundant life of Christ, if you want the hope of Christ, if you want the, the peace that surpasses all understanding that Christ promises, if you want the presence and the seal of the Holy Spirit on your life, then you must... Lay down your life with a decisive faith that says Jesus was raised from the dead and I believe that everyone else will answer to him. But truthfully, ours is a polytheistic culture, isn't it? Our culture is, uh, we live in a place that, that has like this monotheism in the backdrop, this idea of this Judeo-Christian God in the backdrop. But the truth is, is it's pulling our hearts in every direction and saying, no, make, make sure you give a piece of your heart over here and a piece of your heart over there and a piece of your heart over here. That we're an incredibly religious society. I believe that all religions, no matter how atheistic they claim to be, are all religious because God has wired that in that with the imprint of his thumb on us. It's just a matter of whether you worship success and prosperity and self-advancement or if you are completely and wholly devoted unto the Lord himself. Let me give you an example of how polytheism is working its way and how it's evident. You can go on Facebook and there are posts that are made about everything from Little League to, um, to uh, success and work and leadership to uh, education. And you can take those posts and you could take out the word Little League or you could take out the word education or you could take out the, the, the politician's name and you could put the name of Jesus and it wouldn't even change the meaning of the post. The post would still sound like worship. The, sp the post would still sound like devotion. The post would still make sense. That what has happened in modern, southern, Bible, belt Christianity is that Jesus has become a component of a well-rounded life, not the center point of life itself. 
that what I need to make sure is that my kids have made some profession of faith. What I need to make sure is that at some point I have walked through a baptism. What I need to make sure is at least occasionally I come through the doors of a church so that we can have that religious corner of the, of the life of the life resolved so that we can check that spirituality box because we all know, you know, we got to be well-rounded people. We've got to be able to, to speak different languages and play music and play ball and know all the, all the stuff, right? And so Jesus has his corner, but it's just a sliver. Matter of fact, I think our society is so polytheistic and pulling us in so many ways to say it's half-hearted would be an overstatement. What is your family devoted to? Honest before God right now. What is your family devoted to? You see, if you took a married couple and you, and you described about uh, how both of them were, were keeping their options over open and you, you described how both of them were refusing to commit to the other, here's what you would say. What you would say is they have violated their vows. They have undermined the very vows and commitments that they have made to one another. In other words, what you would say is that they have forsaken the covenant. That's what's happened here. Half-hearted love forsakes the covenant. At the baseline of what's going on, at the confrontation that Elijah is making before all of Israel, is will you keep the greatest commandment or not? Will you, remember back Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is at the center point, this is the passage they quote with their children every single morning as they wake up in the day, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is, there are no other gods. We are committed to a monotheistic Yahweh who has made a covenant with us, who has pursued us and loved us and provided for us. And so we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And Jesus tells us that this commandment is the commandment upon which every other command hangs. That if you miss the greatest commandment, you can be polite, you can be well-liked, you can be a friendly neighbor, and you have lost and forfeited the entirety of the covenant if you have not loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. So you know what Bell did? Belt drew out of Israel the half-hearted nature of their love toward him, of toward God. That, that what the presence of Bell and the offerings of the prosperity and the offerings of the fertility and the offerings of, of a grander life and a better life and a more exciting life, what it really did is it served to draw out of Israel how little and how poorly they actually loved God. I wonder if all of the opportunities that we have today, if all of the prosperity that we have today, where we can spend so much time thinking about hobbies and thinking about vacations and thinking about all the extra stuff, which are not bad, which are not wrong. In fact, they are wonderful gifts to us from God. But we take and we become infatuated and obsessed and devout in those things rather than the Lord. And so all of these opportunities and all of this prosperity is actually drawing out of the heart of the church how poorly and little we actually love Christ himself. This is a story of half-hearted love. And in at least two different dimension, dimensions, this is a story of unrequited love. This is a story of unrequited love. So Elijah, he says, let's settle this, all right? 
Let's settle this. You're not sure. You won't answer. You won't say whether you're going to be devoted to Yahweh or whether you're going to be devoted to Baal. Let's settle it on the field, baby. And like, that's our style here in the South, right? Like, let's settle it down at the sod farms. Let's go down to the field. Let's put it light up the scoreboard. Not every child's going to be a winner here today. We're going to figure out who the winner is, right? And so Elijah says, let's have us a little contest. You're constantly being romanced by Baal. You want to give yourself to Baal. Let's just see. And what's interesting about the contest that he presents is he stacks the deck throughout the contest against the Lord, against Yahweh. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to construct two, two, idol, uh, two uh, altars there on the side of Mount Carmel. Now, most scholars believe that Mount Carmel, which is a range of mountains, not a single man, mountain, would have been right there on the edge of the Bell territory, between, kind of on the line between Israel and, uh, and, and uh, Phoenicia. But but it would have been closer to Phoenicia than it would have been to the heart of, of Israel. So this, it's kind of like when Georgia plays at the Georgia Dome. It's supposed to be neutral site, but it's really not neutral site, you know. And he says, here's what I'll let you do. We're going to take two bulls and we're going to slaughter them to offer a sacrifice. But you, you get first pick in the draft. You go ahead. You choose the bull. Then what I'm going to let you do is I'm going to let you have 450. You have all 450 prophets. I'll stand over here. I'll stand over here by myself. In fact, you have the honors. You go first. You get first shot. And if you can call down the fire from heaven, then we'll just say this thing's over and done with before it got started good. And remember, Bell is a storm god. He controls, I don't know, lightning. Lightning burned my house to the ground in 1996. I promise you, it can come and consume a bit of a little bull on an altar, right? And this is supposed to be in Bell's sweet spot. Now, why would he do this? Why would he stack the deck against Yahweh? Because dead men can't dunk, even if the goal is six feet high. He knows. He knows. You see, what had happened is this is really a story of two different versions of unrequited love. Do you know what I mean by that? Unrequited love is when you have one person who loves the other wholly, but it is not returned. It is not reciprocated. It is a one-sided love. The first glimpse of unrequited love is we have here the people of God, always pursued by God, always loved by God, always committed to by God. But as God runs after them, they run away from him. God loves the people of Israel, but Israel doesn't reciprocate. But the other version we have is Israel keeps going after these other gods. Israel, and we've known Baal has been a struggle for a long, long time, hasn't All the way back to the book of Exodus where they melt the golden cow right there at the bottom of, of uh, Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are being brought down. And so Israel's always running after Baal, always running after Baal, always running after Baal, and Baal always, always comes up short. In other words, he doesn't love them back. The love is unrequited. It's not reciprocated. We begin to see here, the way other gods love their people. And since all of us live in a polytheistic society, I hope that I've convinced you of that so far. It's important for us as we consider all of the other gods that are around us and all of the other gods that our children are exposed to and all of, the other, all, all of these precious babies that we, we've committed to the Lord and their families, these are all going to be pulling at them in every direction. So we should consider what the love of these other gods actually looks like. See, other gods are absent from the chase. 
Other gods are absent from the so so in great expectations. Pip, he's all and we probably all know somebody that's like this, right? Pip is always in pursuit of Estella. He's always chasing Estella down, but Estella is just always yeah. Get away from me, man! Like when when at arm's length, right? And here is the picture that we have: we have Israel in pursuit, or, or Yahweh in pursuit of Israel. And Israel's always saying, yeah, I'm good. But then on the other hand, we have Israel always in pursuit of Baal. And how does Baal respond? Well, it tells us. It says from morning until noon. That would have been from like 6 a.m. to about 12 p.m. So we're talking six hours. 450 prophets have been doing everything they can to catch the eye of Baal and to have Baal speak to them and show up. But what does Baal do? It says, no one answered. There was no voice. Bell turns a cold shoulder. He says, eh, I'm good, thanks. Now, Elijah begins to talk a little noise. I don't, I don't know if, if y'all heard me when I was reading this, but Elijah starts talking. I, I mean, can you imagine playing backyard ball with Elijah? Listen to what Elijah says at noon. After six hours has, of this has gone on, Elijah, he begins to speak out. He says, cry aloud, for he's a God, right? Like, he's the God that's going to save all of Israel. He's the God that's going to give you this great wealth, right? Where is he, y'all? Maybe he's out Musing himself, like I hear amusement park, like I'm thinking maybe he went to Six Flags, you know, my favorite personal one. Maybe he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or or perhaps he's asleep, and you must awaken him. And what's interesting is that this is satire being used by the prophet to point out different flaws that were already known about Bell's character. Bell was already known to be kind of an absent-minded God. Bell was already known to, to go to sleep and to be hard to find and difficult to, to locate. Bell was already known, as we talked about last week, to actually die and go into the prison of the underworld during the midst of the, of the dry season. So these things are already known about Bell. And so Elijah is through this mocking, pointing out very specific flaws in the character of Bell. Do you hear what he's saying? A God? This isn't a good God. This isn't even a good man. Where is he? You keep committing yourself to him, but he, you keep chasing after him. You keep running for him. You keep reaching up, and he keeps turning his shoulder. He keeps, he keeps requiring you more and more of you, but he, he doesn't offer any of himself. See, other gods are abusive of their followers. Estella, she spurns the love of Pip, but ironically, she chooses the love of an abuser. She leaves and abandons a faithful man and by choice goes and commits herself to a man that beats her within an inch of her life. My goodness, if that isn't an illustration of what we have here. And my goodness, if that isn't an illustration of what's happening in every community in the Chakalaka Valley. That we have a God who is faithful and good. We have a Savior who left the dignity of heaven, humbled himself upon a cross in pursuit of us. That he might show us the love of our Father in heaven. And we keep chasing after gods. We keep loving gods. 
We keep running after gods that abuse us, that require more and more from us without actually, actually ever giving anything of themselves to us. You'll notice in verse 26, it says that, um, it says that, let's see, no, I'm sorry, verse 27. Either he is musing, verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves as custom until, and as midday passed on, until the offering, but there was no voice, no one answered. It says, well, I lost it there. But it also, oh, there it is right there, verse 23, verse, they limped. They limped around the altar that they had made. Do you remember how this started? The confrontation? You're limping, you're going back and forth, and here's Elijah, and he's seeing, kind of talking metaphorically. Most people believe that the 450 false prophets of Baal were likely prophets of Yahweh that had converted under the pressure of Jezebel because Jezebel had sought to eliminate and kill all of those prophets who were wholly, wholly devoted to Yahweh himself. And so here are these fanatical uh, prophets bouncing around and they begin to cut themselves and slice their arms. And so he says, you've been limping around between two different gods. And that God that you've been trying to give yourself to has actually left you limping. Think about that. How many times over the years had they cut themselves? How many times had they bled for their God? How many times had they danced around hoping that they would catch his attention? And by this point, the scars had begun to accumulate. And by this point, the, the pain and the nerve endings would have been severed to the point where there would have been ongoing and chronic pain in their life. And these, their devotion to this life, this God, had left them abused, discarded, and in pain. That doesn't sound anything like God. You see, Yahweh would actually come become flesh here on the world through Christ himself and he would bleed for his people rather than asking his people to bleed for him. See, other gods abandon when it matters. Other gods abandon when it matters. At there, there at the end of verse 29, you remember, you, you'll remember that I've told you before as we've went through the Old Testament that when, when, when the Hebrew people, when, when they were trying to put like four exclamation points after something, what they would do is they would repeat the word. And then if they repeated it three times like holy, 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 they mean it, mean it in the nth degree. So you'll see there in verse 29 that it says, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. That they kept calling out to this God and they kept cutting themselves and bleeding for this God. And they kept laying down their lives for this God and staking their well-being in the hands of this God. And yet this God did not hear them. This God did not answer them. This God was not there. Is there anything more tragic than selling out your soul for a God that doesn't hear you, won't answer you, and can't love you? Is there anything more tragic than selling out your soul and living out your life and committing all of your time and all of your resources and all of your passion and all of your devotion for a God that does not care, hear you, cannot answer you, and will not love you. Perhaps the only tragedy greater is if we train our children to do the same thing. If we commit our children to chase after gods that cannot love them back. Because you see, there's another love that's here in the story, and it's a story of relentless love. The purpose of 1 Kings chapter 18 was to show how wonderful and powerful and redeeming the love of Yahweh actually was. 
Here they were. They had not loved him back, but he was still in pursuit. Here they were. They had committed themselves to Baal, and Baal was nowhere to be found. But even though Baal wasn't there, and even though they had forsaken the Lord, and even though they had abandoned the covenant and given them only a piece of his heart, here was Yahweh still in pursuit, still coming after his people, still wanting to be in relationship with them, to show them the glory of his name and the devotion that he has to the covenant, even though they don't have it. What we're supposed to see is that life with God is actually better regardless of what Madison Avenue presents us with. Life with God is better regardless of who gets the scholarship money. Life with God is better regardless of the name on your kid's clothes. Life with God is better even if you have to do without some of the trappings that come with the gods of this world. See, I think it's really common for people to ask sometimes, is, so my life is supposed to be all about Jesus, all about Jesus. Like, is he a narcissist or something? Like, why, why does it all have to be about him all the time? Like, doesn't he know that we live in a real world with real problems? We have to do real stuff and have a real life. Doesn't he understand all that? Like, like why does he so self-absorbed that he thinks my life always has to always be about him? It's because God, God is the sun, and we are the planets that revolve around him. Here's what I mean by that. If the gravitational pull of the sun was off just an, just an inch, just an inch, this world would be ruined. It would come apart. It would be totally and utterly destroyed. And for us, for us, if, if our lives are in any way just fractured from God himself, if they are apart from God himself, God is gravity for our lives that holds us together. It is not not self-centered for the sun to demand the earth to rotate around it. It is loving and good because the sun provides the life for the earth. And it is not bad or narcissistic or corrupt for God to demand that our lives rotate around him because it is through him that we're actually able to flourish. It is through him that our lives are held together. It is through him that our children have hope. It is through him. That life with God is qualitatively better than all of the other gods put together. You have all the other gods and you're trying to make them happy and please him. And you never really know where you stand and you never really know what they stand. And God says, no, that is a slavery. That is a slavery. Commit yourself to me. You only have one to worry about. You only have one. Maybe you don't ascend your career, but you, you, you still have me. Maybe your health doesn't allow you to become all the things that you want to become, but you still have me. You can spend 15 hours a week teaching your son how to throw a curveball. And the week after he graduates, he's going to be replaced. You can work at your job 80 hours a week. You can be the employee that is unparalleled by any other employee. You can rise through the corporate ladder faster than anyone else has ever risen. You can get a raise every single year. And the day that your heart gives out from all of the stress, you will be forgotten and replaced and your office furniture moved to the sidewalk. 
They are unloving and harsh gods. But if you center your life upon the Lord today, it will be a first step toward a billion years of joy, of eternal joy in the glory of who he is, that if you will invest and center your lives in the lives of your children, in the lives of your family, and you will try as best you can to bring all of those people around you to center their life upon the Lord, then they don't have the stress of trying to raise their standing in this world. They don't have the stress of having to decide if they're a failure or a success when they lie there on their deathbed. Instead, instead, they're being ushered into the glory that they have been prepared for. And let me tell you, there are no replacements in the kingdom of God. There's just you. You see, he's there been for six hours, probably 12 hours, the time of the offering of the oblation. The, the sky is beginning to come, turn dusk and it's becoming darkened. And it's obvious, it's obvious that Baal is not going to answer. And so, so Elijah goes and he begins to build his altar. Don't you love that? He said 12 hours. Like he was obviously a procrastinating husband, right? Like he said 12 hours to fix the garage door and now he's going to try to fix it. So he, he goes and he gets the, the 12 stones and he says that these 12 stones are, are a representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. I want you to think about that. At this point, the kingdom is divided. Elijah is a prophet to, to Israel, not to Judah. So there's only 10 of the tribes that are right there. And it's a, it's a reminder that it is idolatry that has divided the people of God to begin with. But he takes all 12 of the tribe of, of the stones and he begins to construct the altar. And, and there he lays the bull and he says, hey, hey, the goal, the goal for the Lord isn't high enough yet. It's, it's at 12 feet. Go ahead and raise it to 15 feet. He, he digs a trench around it and he has them bring in three different times water until the whole ditch around the altar is filled with water. And Elijah doesn't dance. And Elijah doesn't have some ecstatic, fanatical Call out to the Lord. Elijah certainly doesn't cut himself, something that has been forbidden by the Lord. He just tells him. He just calls on him. He just asks him, Lord, that your people would know that you are great. Lord, that your people would know that I am your prophet. Lord, that your people would have their hearts turned back from you. Would you send the fire to accept the sacrifice, to show that you are pleased to be in the midst of your people and to receive them into fellowship with you? And there, as he says amen in the benediction, across the darkened sky, a missile fires across the sky and consumes the altar and consumes the stones and consumes the dust and licks the water out of the trench. Have you ever noticed, though, I said it, but have you ever noticed that it consumes the stones? How hot does a fire have to do be to melt the rock? What did the stones represent? The 12 tribes of Israel. Do you know what he's showing them? What he could do and what he should do. They had not loved him back. He had been committed to them. He had been devout in them. He had pursued them. And they had constantly run over, run after all of the other gods. And so what should he do in response to their unrequited love? He should let the fire of heaven come and fall upon them and consume all of Israel. But what does he do instead? He allows the fire of heaven to fall upon a sacrifice there in their place. It was his relentless love that answered one more time against the backdrop of a dark 
darkened sky to consume the stones, to consume the sacrifice, but not to consume his people. Does that sound familiar? See, there would be another time when another prophet would be raised and the deck would be stacked against the Lord again. He would be hung upon a cross. He would be buried in a tomb and it would appear as though death itself had defeated the Lord and forsaken the covenant except, except the fire of heaven that had fallen upon the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, has, how have, why have you forsaken me? The fire of heaven that was the spirit that would inflame the church in the days of Pentecost to go forward. The spirit himself raises the son to say, it should have been my church that was consumed, but it was my son instead. Won't you come to me? It is a relentless love that we have by our Father in heaven. It is a relentless love that is the story of providence. It is a relentless love that causes the people to come and to say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. As they fall on their faces, God's kindness had led them to repentance. And this morning, it may be the first time you've been in church in a very long time. And this morning, we're talking and you're under conviction and you're trying to defend it. And you're trying to justify it and you're trying to excuse it. This morning, won't you let God's kindness bring you to repentance? Won't you let the fact that you heard what you've heard this morning draw you into greater and deeper and richer fellowship? Won't you let it draw you away from all of the abusive gods of this world to a God that has not stopped pursuing you from the beginning? At the end of the story, Estella, she becomes aware through the abuse of her husband of the purity of Pip's love. And she turns to him and she asks for his forgiveness. And this is what she says. I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. God's conviction, God's display and manifestation of his glory and his character is awe-inspiring and fearsome for sinful people. But if it breaks us down, it is for the purpose of forming us into a better shape, into the shape of Christ himself filled with hope, and peace and contentment, not in what we have, but in who we know. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.